0: Welcome to Healing Voices Project, where we share stories of addiction, grief, recovery, and courage. And also from people who work every day in the field of substance abuse who discuss their experiences and advice. I'm Mike Torville, your host. Thank you all for joining us. morning everybody thanks for coming back and joining us here at healing voices project uh, today we have a a very special guest um an expert in the field of addiction and substance abuse disorder we have dr peter friedman from bay state health system and uh dr friedman has been um, a doctor in springfield practicing for over 34 years is that correct
1: Uh, I've been in Springfield actually seven years. I'm coming on seven years. Seven years. years.
0: You've been practicing for. I've
1: been practicing longer than I care to admit.
0: (laughs) We we, we won't do the math (laughs) on that. Um, And over the past 15 years, um, Dr. Friedman has authored over 138 articles and participated in numerous clinical trials. And I have an introduction here that's probably going to. I have to read it, and I apologize because it's too long to memorize, but um, currently you're a Chief Research Officer at Bay State Health, Associate Dean at, for Research at UMass Chan Medical School, and also Professor of Medicine, Professor of Population and Quantitative Health Sciences at UMass Chan Medical School. And among the many professional societies, leadership roles, Dr. Friedman is the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal of Substance Abuse Treatment and a past president of the Massachusetts Society of Addiction medicine, along with several significant honors and awards. Um, it's safe to say that I think you can provide some expert uh, information here on this topic today. I'll do my best. Yeah, uh, Thank you for coming here. I know you're very busy, and I really appreciate you taking time. Because in what we're about here is is sharing stories, sharing information, creating awareness, and also trying to reduce the stigma uh, in many different ways. And this is why talking to, to people like yourself um, and people who share their stories to inspire people. But also what we found is a lot of people don't know the information um, that could be useful to them and how in, in real everyday life um, what might change and, you know, how we share the right information. So I think today we're going to dive into some of that here. And I, I first got to know you or got to know of you um, through your interview with Senator John Velas several months ago. And I thought that was great, and I, I Les and I spoke and said, hey, you know what? This is great information for, for our audience, so I appreciate you taking time. It's a pleasure to be Thanks. here. Thanks. Um, now, I think you know we're going to dive into this, these topics, but I have to ask you to start off is what got you started in this field? What made you choose this area of expertise versus another area of practicing medicine?
1: Yeah, you know, like many things in life, it's your influences, um, and we can get into how other people influence your behaviors in life, uh, maybe uh, as we talk about this topic. But for me, it was uh, sort of my close professional colleagues. A lot of them were doing this work when I was a fellow in Boston. Um Actually, one of my very close colleagues who recently passed, Dr. Richard Sates, and I uh, shared an office. He was doing a lot of work around alcohol use disorder. I had actually, in my residency training, I trained in Montefiore in the Bronx during the AIDS epidemic, and um, I was very much interested in HIV, and that was what I wanted to study. Um, But one of the things I noticed in my residency (laughs) is my... I was very much interested in HIV, but all of my patients were more interested in answers around what to do about their cocaine problems because mm. it was also the height of the
0: back then uh,
1: cocaine D- yeah. epidemic. And, um, and I didn't really have answers. I didn't learn anything in medical school about it, really had very little in residency about it at all. Um, and then I became exposed uh, over the course of my uh, fellowship to folks who were doing this work and then I became engaged with an organization called ImRSA, the Association for Medical Education well it was the Association for Medical Education and Research in Substance Abuse I think it has since changed its name to the Association for Multidisciplinary education and research in substance addiction we can talk about why the language has changed Mm -hmm. um, perhaps over the course of today sure but a, a lot of very influential uh mentors and others in my life uh, sort of brought me and welcomed me into this field. And then you know I in my first job when I went to the University of Chicago, I was all hot to do HIV work and for reasons of stigma, the university at the time was not uh, it, it was not delivering those services. That was really viewed as the, the work to be done at Northwestern, which at Cook County, um, and so I was sort of stymied in my research interests. and And a, a mentor came from the University of Michigan, who had a big NIH grant in in drug abuse, and so I went in that direction.
0: You said for reasons of stigma, <clears throat> they didn't offer that, but but you went into another area that's um, has a stigma to it as well. And, You know, it's
1: interesting. I mean, back in the day, HIV, uh, this was before, you know, all the, now it's, I think it's less so because Mm -hmm. we have treatments which have turned it into a chronic illness that people can live a full normal life with. Right. Um, But this was before, you know, this was a long time ago. And it was very different and it was, you know, it was a fatal illness and was was very scary and um, so a different time. And, and some of it has to do with personalities as well, like everything else in life. It's, uh, it's who's, who are in the positions of dis- making decisions and what decisions do they want to make for, for, um, for the practice, for the clinic. And this was not in their cards. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I went in a different direction. And I'm glad I did, because it's been a wonderful career. And you were
0: out in Chicago and um, other areas, but are you from Massachusetts originally?
1: Actually, originally from New York. I grew up uh, on the north shore of Long Island in a town called Great Neck. And um, uh, my first uh, job out of fellowship was in Chicago. And it was really very formative in this field. I had the opportunity to work with some real major figures in this area. Tom Diano, who led the National uh, Drug Abuse Treatment System Survey, which really established uh, the you know, what are the current practices around the treatment system around the country. Got to work with Ed Sine, who was a mentee of Jerry Jaffe, who was the first drug czar, and uh, was the first person to bring methadone to Illinois. They founded the Illinois Drug Project, which brought methadone. It was the first place outside of New York, as you're probably familiar, methadone was, was first um, investigated at Rockefeller in New mm-hmm. York, and then um, and then it, the, the first program outside was in Illinois. And then with Dean Gerstein, who had actually just come from the uh, National Academy of Sciences and had just written... A ma- you know, the major report um, for the National Institute of Medicine called Treating Drug Problems, which was sort of the first uh, major look at the treatment system and, and some of the quality issues that uh, they identified. Unfortunately, many of them still persist, but um, uh, so a lot of very influential people in my life.
0: And over those years, to say it's sort of an obvious understatement, to say you've seen a lot of changes... It's, it's pretty obvious, but I'm thinking particularly in the last three years or so, just pre-COVID to what we've learned over the last few years, <clears throat> the changes you've seen, um, and I'm sure there there are many, but I'm thinking about what have we learned in the past few years, the changes that you've seen, and the changes from the cocaine to heroin to harder drugs and now the fentanyl problem, uh, what have we learned that has warranted changes in the way we um in programs and practice and policy uh particularly in the last few years
1: yeah i mean it's it's been more than in in the last three i mean during covid Mm. i mean we've learned a lot about the treatment system during the pandemic particularly around the care of folks on medication so so uh folks on medication you know the Methadone regulations are very restrictive um, because of concerns about transmission. They, mm-hmm. uh, within clinics, they were loosened. Um, and the sky did not fall down, right? P- people people did fine. And now there is discussion of making them permanent. There is movement in that direction. We also learned that you know telemedicine is a great way to engage people. So there are a lot of things we've learned recently. But what I've seen over the course of the last, what I would say is the last 20 years, really, um, sort of the growth of the opioid epidemic, is there's really been a sea change, sort of, in the view of the role of medication in the treatment of this disorder. I mean, I remember early in my career, in the late 90s, giving a talk at the, Uh, There's a a National Academy of Drug Court Professionals. I remember going out in Nashville and giving a talk. uh, It was actually in the early 2000s, and basically being about the benefits of medication for the treatment of opiate use disorder, Um, because the data was very strong even then, Um, and being basically booed off the stage. <laughs> it was, it, uh, that has changed dramatically. I mean, that is one thing that has changed dramatically is sort of the view um, and, and the importance of medication as part of uh, treatment of this disorder. Now, we can talk about the other addict, the other substance addictions. We don't have quite dr- as dramatic medication benefits, but. Um, you know, I, I often think of this as a family. I, I talk about this as a family of, of disorders, or mm. you can use the word disease. We can talk about disorder versus disease. I do want disease. to talk about that. We yes, can, yes. Yeah. But uh, I think of it as a family of disorders, kind of like, can, you know, you think of cancers as a family of disorders. There are blood cancers. There are solid tumors. And the treatments are different, right? The treatments that you use for leukemia are different than the ones that you use for breast cancer. mm mm-hmm. And even though they have sort of similar um, pathology, you know, the over-proliferation of cells, the the way you approach them is different. And it's the same for when you're dealing with alcohol or you're dealing with cocaine or methamphetamine or or opiates.
0: And and for listeners who, just to clarify, when you're talking about medications, you're talking about uh, methadone, suboxone, Vivitrol, medications like that and when they're used. Um, how do you determine, if somebody's listening and they don't know, well, when, when is one used versus another? And why would you say, okay, we're going to put you into a methadone program versus something else? How, how does someone who's not an expert in this know the difference between those?
1: Well, so I, you know, I, I really believe that a if a person has concerns a- about this disorder, they need to get an assessment and have a consultation with somebody who understands the difference. I mean, the way we manage them is is different. Um, so, so buprenorphine, or uh, the brand name is is Suboxone or Subutex, is um, the way it's regulated is different from methadone. It is. Um, Uh, it is available to give in the office. So typically, folks who are able to sort of manage their medication and have, uh, within the American Society of Addiction Medicine, we sort of talk about the recovery environment. So if it's relatively stable, you know, they have a place to live, they have a place to store their meds safely, um, and they can they can take their medication each day Usually that is, by and large, the first line treatment. Methadone is a much more, uh, uh, the regime around methadone is much more structured. So you have to go to at least early on. Structured and supervised. Supervised, you have to go into a program every day. There's certain required counseling. There's certain required um, uh, urine toxicologies. There's, you know, there, there, there are certain requirements that you have to do. And, and, and that's often for people who have a more severe disorder or um, who require more structure in their life. Um, the uh, Vivitrol or the injectable naltrexone um, is interesting. You know, I, I, m- my view of this is this is really for really, really highly motivated people uh, who don't want. Um, what's called an agonist, so they really want to lose the, uh, sort of, try to have their receptors come back to a more natural state, and um, but the the problem with that is, you know, it's an injection, people don't like injections, and um, the experience with it has been that people tend to drop off it pretty quickly, um, because there's no withdrawal. If you come off Vivitrol, there's no withdrawal, there's no consequence. You know, if there's no feeling of it, so people either forget or they stop it, and um, and then you know, if they find themselves in a triggering situation, they're not protected. The other problem with it is you lose your tolerance, and we can talk about that and why the loss of tolerance is such a problem for overdose. Um, when you lose your tolerance, um, if you use, you know, people over time build, they develop tolerance, so they need more and more um, of whatever it is. And nowadays, now, now on the days in the, on the street, it's fentanyl. It's all fentanyl. People call it heroin, but it's really fentanyl. You need more and more of it to get the same effect. Um, and that's the development of tolerance. It um, goes along with withdrawal when you stop. And if you detoxify people and put them on Vivitrol, what happens is they go back to square one in terms of the amount that they need. So if you needed, you know, I don't know, 100 grams to get high today, you'd go back to 10 grams, right? But if you if you happen to take 50, you know, you say, oh, I'll cut what I used to use in half because I want to get high. Uh, And you've lost your tolerance, that's when you overdose
0: you've lost your tolerance. It's like a shock to the system. You know? It is. Yeah. It
1: is. And, and, and you know, in a lot <laughs> of jails and prisons, that's been the problem. And why you know, the data show that overdose, rates of overdose, um, when you look at compared to sort of age-matched adults, people leaving prison have 120 times the rate of overdose Uh, of of other people in the population because they've gone into jail in most cases and they've been detoxified and then they come out and they use and boom. they. Their tolerance has changed. Their tolerance has gone down. Now unfortunately unfortunately, fortunately in our state, in our commonwealth um, there has been a lot of movement in the jails and prisons to make medications available which is great. Uh, and I've been very involved in some of the evaluations of that uh, work. but still around the country um, that is not the standard the standard there's still a lot of places where people are coming in and being taken off
0: this This leads to a topic that I've been reading about and, and I know you and Senator Velas talked about this is about safe consumption sites here in Massachusetts or in New England and there's been some recent progress. Um, I want to talk about how, your feelings about safe consumption sites, but also what's the progress in Massachusetts right now with that?
1: Yeah, I mean it hasn't um, gotten out of committee. I mean they uh, they've had a bill for a number of years. Uh, I my personal feeling is it's you know the data are very clear that it is a lifesaver, and uh, it is a it prevents. You know, HIV, you know, it allows people to get safe equipment and, and, and reduce overdoses. So it has a lot of benefits. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I, I often find myself in the situation where I have a, a patient whom I'm treating, whom I know, who, who I know is continuing to use uh, and use street sources, you know, fentanyl on the street, um, and for them, every time they use, it's a crapshoot. Yeah. It really is. It's
0: like a Russian roulette, right? Yeah. yeah.
1: And if I was able to say to them, you know, I understand this is difficult, you know, to come off and you're not quite ready. But please go to this place where you could at least do it. And if you get into trouble, you'll be there'll be a, a professional there who knows how to reverse it. You know, there have been millions around the world. There have been millions and millions of people injections done within safe consumption uh sites and they've not had a single death.
0: Not one. Right, because Narcan's available, they can do it. Yeah. And I think in the beginning <clears throat> I thought, well, that's is that going to um encourage use? Is it going to is it enabling? But the more I've learned about this, the more I've I saw the other side and said, you know what, there's so many benefits to this. One, you're right, you can prevent overdoses, it's controlled, it's supervised, people have Narcan available. Um, There's maybe some fear of it's gonna be crime in the neighborhood, because it's gonna draw people in. But being supervised, controlled, preventing overdose deaths, but also averting other medical costs, too. The the follow-up costs are greater, so I think in the end it actually saves a community money Maybe even reduce crime. Certainly reduce overdose deaths.
1: It does actually. Yeah. The police in 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 the areas that have them uh, think it's a wonderful thing. It reduces syringe litter. It reduces crime. Um, it reduces public, you. I mean, people using in public. So um, uh, disorder, you know, disorderly conduct and those kinds of things. Um, and it. It Definitely saves lives, um, so and if
0: there is a reaction, you have somebody there, a medical person, to take care of it. Right. Yeah. And so the
1: other thing that's really underappreciated is so you have you have an opportunity to interact. So these are normally people who are sort of hidden out in the shadows, off by themselves. So it brings people into a place where um, they interact with others and they interact with healthcare professionals. There's an opportunity to counsel them, to talk to them about treatment and about safe use and harm reduction. And what they've found I- is many people go on, you know, so that when they're ready for recovery, when they're ready for treatment, you know, you can put them right in there. And and um, so there really has been a uh, demonstrable uh, uh, ability to get people into treatment.
0: And I think if somebody did go to the safe consumption sites, they're, and they've gone a few times, you're right, and it becomes already, there's a trust, I would think. They've yes. established a trust with the people they see and say, hey, you know, and, and you're right, maybe they can be um, exposed to, to some treatment program where they wouldn't be if they were doing alone. And I think, as we know too, <clears throat> most overd- de- overdose deaths occur when someone's alone. Having somebody with them can re- greatly reduce that
1: yeah, and what you call trust, i i there's a lot of literature on what's called therapeutic alliance. So a lot of change, a lot of behavioral change happens through the influence of other people. I was talking about my professional trajectory, you know, the influence of others around me clearly mm-hmm. influenced me. and that's true for everybody mm-hmm. who you know, there have been studies that have shown that you know if you if you live with somebody who overeats, you're more likely to overeat. you know <laughs> there there's there's, there's a lot of that sort of social network. So if you're taking people out of just a network of folks who are using and using in an unsafe way and bringing them into a place where there is, uh, you know, an emphasis on health and uh, improving one's life, that does have an influence on people. And 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 just let me just speak quickly to the to the notion that it, you know, people say, oh, you're just encouraging use. Well. It, it, to me, the analogy is, you know, saying like seat belts and airbags encourage people to drive recklessly, which is to, which is people would never say that, you know. Um, so I, I really feel like it is it is a no brainer. But uh, from a policy perspective, it's been a very challenging um, uh, hump to get over.
0: And I, I, I think again, we talked about some of that resistance. Is it going? Is it enabling? Is it going to increase crime? Is it going to increase costs for a community? But I think in the, the data I've read, it can reduce overdose deaths by more than a third. Mm-hmm. And just thinking about that aspect, I think it far outweighs um, those other areas of concern. Um, yeah,
1: I mean, you yeah. want to keep people alive <laughs> until they're ready for recovery. Yeah. I just and yeah. frankly, if it were my kid, you know, if God forbid, to to to, knocking on wood here, uh, if my kid had this problem, I would want her to go to a place. I would want her to go to a place like this. And I know many of your listeners probably have kids who have these issues. Um, you would want this for your kid to be to, to be safe they're going to use in a safe place keep them alive until they're ready to 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 seek recovery
0: and in Massachusetts right now it they're not available yet but it's,
1: it's they are not um available not
0: yet working not, on it not yet
1: <laughs> they are available in new york um and there is an, uh in california there are a couple under, around the country there are some underground ones. Okay and there's are,
0: one in Rhode Island I think that was opening or at least they will be opening in yeah, Rhode Island in Rhode Yes. Island. Okay.
1: so it's, I, I think it's coming I think it's inevitable mm-hmm. um, it's really a question of how long. And I think
0: the more data the more you hear the more you see because it's changed my mind certainly the, the more you say well wait a minute there's a, there's a point of this that I did, didn't see before and I think that the more people know maybe some of that resistance will go away we, we hope that uh, we'll see. Uh, we, we talked about a little bit, you mentioned it, and I do want to ask about this the topic of calling um, substance abuse disorder a disease versus a disorder versus uh, none of the above. And, um, it, okay, if it's a disease like other diseases, and further to that is to someone listening, well, okay, what does it matter? What changes? If you categorize it as a disease versus a disorder or something else,
1: yeah, I, I often say that's a distinction without a difference. Okay. <laughs> um, so, to be honest, the the issue of calling it a disease has to do with whether or not healthcare professionals are going to get paid to deal with it. Right, doctors, nurses, counselors. Uh, Mental health professionals get paid to, to manage disease, right? Social pro- we don't get ma- paid to manage social problems. So if you call it just a social problem, which there are people who used to or do, probably they're still social workers. Social, but they, yeah. but but they don't. But that's not um, you, you. You wouldn't get paid to do that. I mean, my feeling about this: there are a lot. There are a lot of syndromes in medicine that we deal with. Things that um, uh, we we don't fully understand the causes thereof, um, but we we understand that they are dysfunctions in how people are uh, in in one or more area of life, and this happens to be one in which there is a clear behavioral pattern, which is well described in the you know the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is what we use to describe behavioral and mental disorders and um it has a you know it has a um a neurochemical basis um so you know my feeling is the, the the issue becomes you know when people start out there clearly is a there is a choice that's made you know or you know you're in a situation with peers or others. I've often heard this described, it's described as a disorder with pediatric onset. You know, you're, you're usually, it's usually teenagers, you know, experimenting and as teenagers are wanted to. Most do. often, yeah. 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 And, um, and then it sort of gets out of, you know, they don't appreciate the risks and then it sort of gets, in some folks, depending on their environment, their background, um, their genetics, uh, it gets; they lose control over, and it's really that loss of control over the behavior that really is the sine qua non, if you will, of the of the disorder. That it's um, and and so so whether we call, I, from my perspective, whether we call it a disorder, a disease, a syndrome, a diathesis, whatever you whatever your favorite term is. It doesn't really matter that the, the manifestations, you know, uh, in, in American society, addiction medicine talks about the four C's. So it's the loss of control, the compulsive nature of the behavior. Uh, it's the craving and it's the continued use despite consequences. You know, those four things to me sort of describe at that point it really is, this, it, is, it fits the idea of a disease. But earlier on in the life, you know, in the course of the illness, it behaves a lot like a risk factor, right? So, and, and so I ask, I often ask this question is high blood pressure a disease? I don't know if any of your listeners have high blood pressure. I do. I take a pill every day for it, um, it's silent. So it has really no manifestation, except when they check my blood pressure, it happens Do to you
0: be notice hot. anything different if you stop taking it?
1: I notice nothing. Oh. I, uh, well, yeah, I do notice some things, but I don't know if I can talk about it on the air. <laughs> but uh, the medication has some side effects, let's uh-huh. just say that. Okay. But um, so it is a risk, but I, I view it as a risk. It's a disorder of my, you know, how I regulate my blood pressure. It puts me at risk for certain things, right? Risk for stroke, risk for heart disease, kidney disease, other things, right? And so I take medication to manage that risk factor. And so early in its course, addiction uh, or substance use, substance use disorder, mild, manifests for me more as like a risk factor. It's like... You haven't yet experienced consequences. You may not yet have craving. You may not yet have lost total control over it, but it's risky. Like what you're doing is risky, and over time it may progress, um, but at every point it is a risk factor and does merit attention and treatment from a professional.
0: Yes, and if you think about the (coughs) adolescents using typically recreationally, Right, mm-hmm. and this is a choice that there was there was no reason for them to take other than peer pressure, recreational experimentation, and so on. And then it turns into an addiction, and then it becomes a, a, a problem. Obviously, a medical problem, the disease. But yeah, I mean, it's yeah. fun. I mean, it's yeah. reinforcing. Yeah. I mean,
1: uh, I I happen to drink. Uh, you know, I you know occasionally I like I, I like a good cocktail. Many of us do. You know, it is reinforcing. And for some people, it that re you know anything that is reinforcing like that one can develop um, uh, a loss of control over that and and this disorder. Yeah. So um, and again, it you know it runs in families for a reason, partly environment, partly genetics. Um, so. Um, you know, there are some people who can drink moderately and, and do perfectly fine and others who can't. Um,
0: and I've had several guests and several friends and people, family members who said, I cannot go out and have a beer. One beer is not in the in the menu. It's, right. it's finishing a case of beers, it's to the extreme. Because they just can't get past that one beer triggers it all and it goes. <clears throat> so
1: what, I think there's an AA expression about that one one drink is too much and and ten drinks or one drink is too too many and ten drinks is not enough or something like so, that. Yeah, and there it just goes
0: endlessly like until there's yeah. a pass out moment and that's the end. Yeah. But it affects so much of, of your job, your life, everything, uh, <clears throat> and. Um, You know, when you start off with the recreational use, and I, again, it's something I've changed my mind about, is, oh, it shouldn't be a disease. How is it treated? It's recreational. It's choices. But I think about it. Let's, not all the time, but typically lung cancer starts off as a choice, the the choice to smoke, and then it turns into lung cancer. Well, nobody's saying, well, you know, you don't qualify for treatment because you chose to smoke. That doesn't it's not that I, way. Yeah, I have yeah. a
1: more stark example. Uh huh. So skiing, okay, is a choice. Yeah, and when you break your leg, we yeah. don't say to you, you know, you chose <laughs> to ski. Right, it's
0: your own fault. It's
1: your own fault. <laughs> you know, it's risky. You know, yeah, or yeah. any of these extreme sports, people. Have, yeah, you know, but there are, there are, you know, there's risk in everyday life. People take risks, and, um, and this happens to be one. Uh, that leads to a particular disorder and and we make these choices all the time and and we make distinctions about like were like which risks which ones are worthy and which ones are not that 's really the
0: yeah, and often the more informed you are um, the more it, you you can have a uh, call it an opinion, but i 've changed my opinion the more i 've learned about this, and you know it 's not always a choice because. Yeah, it may, and often it does start off recreationally, peer pressure, and I've been a, I've done that, you know. I've experimented a little bit here and there when I was younger. I like having a beer every now and then, and um, and I can see, fortunately, knock on wood again, I'm, I'm not in addiction or in recovery, but in my family, it exists. My grandfather was an alcoholic, and, and my aunt, his daughter, uh, became an alcoholic, and uh, also w- along with drug use, and she passed away a few years ago. So we've seen it. Up close and personal, how it can manifest itself, but so I avoided that.
1: Yeah, so it's not yeah. always—it's not always a choice. I mean, yeah. to to your point, um, you know, we hear stories all the time about sort of the intergenerational passing of mm-hmm. the disorder. You know, parents who are using in front of their kids. Um, uh, you know, alcohol as a as a major. Part Part of family culture. Yeah. You're, you're, if you're born into that, that's all you know. I mean, um, and it, it's ex- not really a tr- you, you. You don't choose your family.
0: It's right? what you know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, there's something else that 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 leads to. There's a couple things that's going through my head now. Is in um, is is pain medication and dependence on pain medication and how that can lead. That's not recreational use. It becomes. <clears throat> call it a desperation because I, I and I'll relate to my own experience with that. Is, um, For example, in the, the book I had written called Voices from the Fallen, there's a few stories of people who broke the wrist, yes. ended up on pain medication, and then um, ended up taking heroin because the pain medication was no longer available. The OxyContin was no longer available from the doctor. They get it from the streets, and then that's run its course, and then the heroin takes over, partly because of the tolerance changes and of course, the cost, heroin is a lot less expensive. But <clears throat> I'll take one case, for example, in the book. A um, person's name is Jeff in the book. And he's 50, in his mid-50s, he hurts his back. He goes to the doctor, gets the Oxy. Um, and he went to the doctor for a follow-up after a few weeks. And doctor said, okay, I'm going to give you another prescription for the pain medication. And Jeff says, I'm fine. I, I have half a bottle left. I'm good. And the doctor said, why do you have half a bottle left? By now, you should have taken it as prescribed. You should stay ahead of the pain. And um, you take it as prescribed. I'm going to give you this prescription. Well, okay, you're the doctor. I'll listen. Took it. And then as he took it as prescribed, when he ran out, um, he desperately needed it. And he needed more of it. And that led to getting it on the streets when his prescription ran out, and it led to him becoming a heroin addict. Mm -hmm. He wasn't an adolescent recreational user. He wasn't getting peer pressure. His body needed it, and he overdosed. He survived it, Um, and uh, his life was torn apart. His family was ripped apart. Everything happened because of it. And now uh, those things... Happen happened frequently, too frequently. In my own experience, I've had knee surgeries, multiple knee surgeries. And, of course, I get my go home with your crutches and your bottle of Oxy. Mm-hmm. And um, I just went through this just three months ago. And when that was out, I'm like, well, I can handle this. I'm good. I'm good. But at night, I'm dying of pain. Mm-hmm. And I say, where's that bottle? I call the doctor next day. I really need this. I feel desperate. And I just needed it. And he... I got it and it ran its course and that's the end of the story but I, I get that feeling like I'm pacing in the middle of the night mm-hmm. just craving for it I'm digging where did I leave that pill I go, wow it has that effect on you um and then you think about people that say they're on the street heroin and I'm going to talk about arresting and decriminalization and, and things like that because you got somebody who's a pretty decent person They're not a criminal. They're not breaking the law. They just developed a dependence on pain medication that led to heroin, and now they're arrested and they have a a record now. And maybe end up in jail. So I just wanted to get your thoughts on the decriminalization of drug use and and how you think the effect of that is uh, and where we're at.
1: With that yeah I mean, that's Is a great it, question yeah. there, you know there's just a ton in in, in the story you just told <laughs> <I> know. <laughs> um, you know uh, as, a, as a medical doctor myself I I, uh, I apologize Mea culpa. my my profession has not been on top of this as much as and 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 frankly the medical profession was very much influenced by pharma during you know the 2000s um, ni- the 90s and 2000s around uh, Underappreciating the addictive potential of these medications, mm-hmm. and you know, and that's a you know was a, a del- as we know now was a deliberate marketing strategy, um, and you know doctors are subject to these things as uh, just like anyone else. That the uh, you know this is not a new problem, so you know there have been different waves of opiate. Uh, you know, different opioid epidemics over the course of the last century and a half. You know, starting back after the Civil War, there was you know with the development of the hypodermic needle. Actually, heroin was originally developed as a treatment for morphine addiction. Was it something you,
0: know. you drank back then, or was no, it? No, no, no. It was injectable, but it was oh.
1: it was pe- people had morph- morphine dependence and. Uh, and, and heroin was marketed by bear Wasn't
0: it. wasn't cocaine part of the original Coca Cola formula yes, back it, then too? it, it was. Okay, it okay. was.
1: These were, ba- you know, there were a lot of things done. This was long mm. before there was an FDA or, okay. or any regulations. And and um, you know, so a lot of people, uh, you know, uh, if, if anyone's ever seen the film Long Day's Journey and Tonight it's often it's about that. I, um, I recommend you read that again. Uh, uh, you probably read it in high okay. school. Um, the mother in that case has a has an opiate problem, but uh, so this is not a new thing. We had flares in the forties and fifties and sixties and you know in seventies it brought a, that's what brought methadone in, in, into you know into widespread use and so I mean the thing that's changed you know so, so clearly the population affected has changed used to be considered an inner city problem it was very racialized um... and so there was very much criminal justice um, uh... you know the war on drugs and things taken around that now that it's affecting white people uh... and people outside of the inner cities uh... you know we're you know we're starting to view it differently we can we can have a whole session about why that is uh, uh, and about yep. the racial history of this country, but um, th- the fact of the matter is that the the uh, you know the idea that we can lock up our lock up our way out of this problem, I think we've, we we've established that that hasn't worked, and that we really need more public health approaches. Um, you know, a number of states um, have decriminalized uh, you know possession, Oregon. Um, you know Portugal other places and I understand there is a bill uh, in our legislature as well to Mm -hmm. do that you know I do think it I do think it is the right approach we should not be incarcerating people for for use and um, we really should be taking a more uh, medical slash public health approach to this that's really it's a disorder it's you know and and the idea that we Lock people up for having a disorder uh, is is just unconscionable, in in my opinion. Um, but there was a lot in your in your comments about, um, and and I and I want to I just want to because because you use the term addict, and a lot of us in the field now are sort of moving away from that kind of terminology. I know mm-hmm. it's still very much used in sort of the 12-step community. You know, my name is so-and-so, I'm an addict, or I'm an alcoholic. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, there really is a view now, that, and, and there's been some research showing this by some, my colleague John Kelly and MGH and others, that has shown that using le- less stigmatizing language uh, it, it is a better way to go in terms of folks' view of the disorder. So I prefer to say, you know, a person with an addictive pr- addictive disorder or a person with substance use disorder um, rather than talking about sort of addicts, alcoholics, abuse. It does all these, stigmatize. All these yes. sort of yeah. stigmatizing mm-hmm. words. Um, uh, I, 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 and there, So there really is, I think there is something to that, and there's been a lot of work going on. Actually, we at Bay State have a have wor- what we call the Words Matter campaign, yeah. which we did within the hospital, and it's changed the way medical providers talk about their patients. Because the way you talk, it really does affect your attitudes towards people. And affects
0: their willingness as somebody to, to come forward. Right?
1: And it humanizes people yeah. to say this is a person, this is a whole person who happens to have this disorder, rather than saying this is an addict. You know, this is a, you know, or, or you know, older, t- you know, this is a junkie. The, yeah, you know, yeah. There are all kinds of words like that that are very stigmatizing that, you know, people still use. And so we're trying to move away from that and use more person first, so thinking about the whole person, and more clinically appropriate language. Um, so talking about folks who have substance use disorder, I think, is um, is more to the point. That's the rather than talking about substance abuse, um, which uh, is very stigmatizing.
0: Yes, and I think too, people still, and it's starting to change, but have an image of of somebody says they're a heroin addict using those words. You get this picture of somebody in an alley behind a dumpster shooting up. And it's not so much that anymore. You have people in every level of affluence, every type of community, every race who this is affecting. And I think that's, they're finding, and look at, you celebrities, people with, you know, living in mansions or... <laughs> well, I think the, <laughs> the,
1: the fact of the matter know. is it, ne- it, it was never... That was always the stereotype. Yes. And it, as I said, it was very racialized yep. and urban. It was never like that. Um, but what we've seen in the current epidemic is folks... And, and you asked early on in this conversation, you asked know, what's changed, I mean, people are now starting to see that, oh, this is not a disorder that's just sort of confined to the inner city. It's really everywhere.
0: Everywhere, yeah. And it's hard to find a family who's not affected by this, whether it's friends, family members who does not have a direct connection to somebody who's going through the substance abuse disorder. And I I know personally, I've had many friends whose sons have, have died between 19 and 25 years old. Mm, Terrible. It's awful. Um, And, you know, one of the things to talk about, I want to talk about the Good Samaritan Law Mm -hmm. because that, talk about the immunity of somebody who's maybe afraid because of several reasons, I mean, fear of getting arrested. Um, And if somebody's with somebody and and they're overdosing, um, they can call, and with this good Samaritan law they're they're immune to being um, in trouble with the law right it, yeah it, you know it's not it as it's yeah.
1: not as unfortunately it's not as effective as we would hope yeah. um so you can't be arre- you can't b- be arrested for possession for that incident however the problem is a lot of folks have outstanding warrants for other crimes or other things and so there is often fear that if they call, they're going to be picked up on these other warrants. So there does need to be some uh, modification of the law to sort of address that issue. Mm-hmm. But largely it has been effective in terms of getting folks to, to make the calls, understanding that they, you know themselves would not be liable for the particular, this particular and the
0: event. opportunity to save someone's lives by making that call and not the fear because I've even in the people I've spoken with and interviewed it, it's it's harsh it's it's awful to say but sometimes they've oh my gosh are they alive did they overdose let's get out of here right <laughs> Don't let the police find them that's horrible well I think the yeah. thing
1: that you know is really life-saving is to, to get narcan N- Naloxone, out into the community and Have it widely available everywhere um, for people who are using, uh, their families, Mm -hmm. um, and to be sure that they have the skills and and readiness to use it, And, and to encourage folks never to use alone. And alone, you know, people think of alone, oh, well, my family member is downstairs. Well, that's, no, you're in the bathroom upstairs, that's alone. Uh, and it's, you know, and fentanyl, the, the, the thing that's um, horrible, many things are horrible about fentanyl, yeah. but it, it, the, the time of response it has to be so quick, you know, the onset is so fast, um, people can die very quickly. So never use alone, have someone else in the room, have Narcan at the ready. If you can do a test shot. Or if you can do a, um, uh, have a fentanyl test strip to check your check your um, stuff to see whether there's any fentanyl in it, that's advisable. But at the very least, have someone else in the room uh, at the time that you're using. How does someone get a test
0: strip for that? So
1: a a number of the uh, local syringe service programs do have fentanyl test strips. Okay. And you can, you know, after after you've prepared your dose, you can dip. You can do a dip and see whether or not there's fentanyl in there. A a, a lot of folks are recommending that. You know, 90-plus percent of what's out there now is fentanyl. Uh, if you're buying heroin that's fentanyl.
0: That's fentanyl, yeah.
1: The other thing that is really really r- dangerous now is there is a lot of stuff that is out there as cocaine or pressed pills, Xanax, other things that is r- that are that are really fentanyl, that are f- there are counterfeits with pressed fentanyl. And we're s- we're also seeing folks die. And, th- and those are risks cuz those folks saying, "Oh, well, I'm not using Heroin, so I don't need to have an arcan kit nearby. But even cocaine and, and these other things, uh, pills uh, nowadays, if you're buying it on the illicit market, um, you need to be careful because it could have fentanyl in it.
0: That is so scary. That it just it's uh, terrible, unbelievable. One of the things that that's come up often too, and again, it's something I've. <laughs> changed my mind about I've changed my mind about a lot of things over the past uh, year or so more I learned about this is in a lot of families I've heard this too well they're using and and um let's they let's say they're referring to a family member they're using and you know we've tried everything I guess I guess they've got to hit and you know the term that's coming rock bottom before they can get to treatment so they'll sort of just wait for that rock bottom to hit and that i Thought about this so much that that is so dangerous, and rock bottom is often um, is something you don't come back from because it's a rock bottom could be death, especially with what you were talking about with the, 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 so much fentanyl out there. And rock bottom is different for everybody. But at what point do you allow your family to be more torn apart, your finances to be wiped out? Why, why wait to rock bottom when you're Potentially destroyed your life. The more you can intercept it, the earlier you can intercept it. And to me, there's no, there's zero reason to to allow this to happen to rock bottom. I don't know what your thoughts are on that.
1: Yeah, I mean the the notion of having to hit bottom is a that's a from the twelve step tradition. Yeah. Um, you know, as a clinician, I see people all the time who, uh, for various reasons. Will seek care and have not, uh, you know, had a dire. Con- when you think of rock bottom, you think of a dire consequence. So, like they're homeless, or they've had an overdose, or
0: there is nothing left for they've them. Gotten yeah, HIV,
1: yeah. They've gotten HIV. They've gotten HIV. Landed in jail. Landed in jail. So um, you don't necessarily have to have those things. Pe- people can, you know, people can change at any point. Um, Sometimes it's just a question of you know holding a mirror up to them. You know this this is what your life this is what promise your life had. This is what you're doing. Uh, you know it is a dis- it it is a disorder. We need to get help for it. You know just like if you had I don't know cancer or or you need to get help. For, you know you 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 would never say oh I'm gonna you know treat my cancer going. Cold. I guess some people go to Mexico and get some crazy treatments for their cancer but you should seek professional care for uh, for these for these things it's and and encourage folks you know this is this is a a disorder it is treatable Uh, and people recover all the time people do extremely extremely well Um, get their lives back and you so you asked me early on how I got into this field. But yeah. What you didn't ask me is why did I stay in this field, <laughs> and and the answer yeah. is, has to do with reinforcement. Since we're talking about addiction, and for me, what's been incredibly reinforcing is seeing people. You know, I, I, I'm an internist, so like used to be like an incredible success was like if your blood pressure went from like one sixty. Uh, systolic down to 140 systolic I was like woohoo but uh, or you know if your sugars went from you know an A1C A1 of like 8 to 7 that was a huge victory but with this disorder what I see as a provider is I see people totally turn their lives around get their families back get get good jobs start to have savings I mean, you see people in their, f- really, in their fullest lives. Mm-hmm. It's, as, a, as a clinician, it's incredibly, incredibly rewarding. And um, I don't know how much longer we're going to go, but I just want to talk a little bit about one of my favorite papers. Yes. Um, in the medical literature, it's a paper called The Clinician's Illusion. It's from 1984. It's written by a very well known statistician, uh, a couple, Jacob and Patricia Cohen, in the Archives of General Psychiatry. And they talk about disorders for which we have um, a biased pessimism about the prognosis, which is to say, we believe that people do worse than they really do. And he talks, in the paper, they talk about schizophrenia, they talk about alcoholism uh, and, and, and drug addiction. And, and the way this comes is, like, if you stood in the emergency department and you're a clinician, the cases that you see, there's a, is a bias in terms of the cases you see. You see p- cases of long duration, of, of high severity, who are coming in with complications. And you're seeing them all day long. So your natural um, conclusion is, oh, these folks must do really poorly. Why, you know, uh, why, why bother treating them? Why bother? The problem is, the people who do well leave your leave your emergency department or your jail. It's the same in jails. Mm-hmm. They leave and they never come back. You don't see them again. So they're out of you know out of sight, out of mind. Whereas the people who do poorly they keep coming back they call them frequent flyers there's like
0: mm-hmm. keep
1: coming back and those are the ones you see and it's a form of availability bias it's a cognitive bias that you you extrapolate from them to the entire population and it's a, it's an illusion it's an illusion people you know do extremely well there are a lot of people who go off um, it, it, for me the analogy that i use is like if the only people with cancer that you ever saw were people with metastatic stage four cancer, you would conclude, oh, cancer is incurable. There's no point. Mm -hmm. Um, But you never see the people, you know, with earlier stages in whom, you know, you give them a word of encouragement or you suggest they go get care. And they do. And they do well and they don't come back. So I, I, for those of you who are clinically minded out there um, or work in clinical settings, you know, keep this in mind. It's it is a real illusion. It is a real phenomenon. Folks, I, I, and, and if you do this for work, like I do in a, in, in sort of more of an outpatient primary care setting, you, it's incredibly rewarding because you see people do extremely, extremely well and get their lives
0: back. Yeah, and that's right, and, and it's, that's interesting, and I do want to read that. It's uh, a good paper. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it's really rewarding, too, to, to, when we discuss it with with some of our guests and people that we've had in the, in the book Voices from the Fallen to see how they've overcome and got their lives back. Um, <clears throat> see families come back together. I mean, that's just an incredible thing that, that keeps you going. And same with this. If we're hearing, if someone's listening and just hears about something that saves their lives, we'll, we may never know about it, but still, it can be very rewarding to hear somebody has a good success story as a result of something that you've said you know, so. I hope so. Yep. Yeah, well, um, I know we could talk all day and I, would love to have you back. Um, and if you're, if, especially with updates and safe consumption sites and other topics like that.
1: It would be my pleasure.
0: Thanks. Yeah. Well, thanks everybody for listening and especially to Dr. Friedman for joining us, taking time out of your busy schedule. Appreciate your time. Appreciate having you here and everybody for listening. Uh, see you soon. Thanks.